Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. charges former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin with murder in the second degree for the death of George Floyd. Hennepin County attorney Michael Freeman and I uh, uh, filed a complaint that charges uh, police officer King, Lane, and Tao with aiding and abetting murder in the second degree a felony offense. Welcome to Yolitics. The home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. All right. Welcome, everybody. Uh, boy, it has been another week, another week of some extraordinary images and sounds from all across this country, all across this state. And you know what? We look out all across this world. Uh, we have been seeing tremendous reaction to the death in Minneapolis police custody of George Floyd. Uh, and so today we are asking the question. We're already looking ahead uh, for the day that these protests start to fade a little bit. What happens after that? What comes next? next. Uh, Is there real action that's going to come after all of the words are said? Uh, Jason, you have to wonder that this time, especially because this time feels very different. No question it's different. People are demanding change and we deserve change. African-Americans deserve change. Our society deserves change. So when we started looking at this, we're like, well, who has some ideas on what concrete things can be done to exact change in law enforcement. You ran across somebody. I found a guy named Gregory Smith. He's a director of the Institute for Law Enforcement Administration. This is in Collin County. He's a former cop. He knows his stuff. And we, at this point in time, actually educate in the area of three to 400 police sergeants in Texas every year. So that's where our real impact is, that sergeant rank is where the rubber meets the road. And if you want to affect change in a law enforcement uh, organization, there's three positions that you really have to, 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 to focus on. One, the CEO, the chief of police, the sheriff. Two, um, the field training officers, the coach officers who coach new officers. And three, probably in my opinion, the most important position is the street supervisor. And Gregory, you mentioned the CEO. You've got to train the CEO. We found another guy here in Texas uh, named uh, Alex Del Carmen. He is a Ph.D. associate dean and professor of the School of Criminology, Criminal Justice and Strategic Studies at Tarleton State University. And he deals with police chiefs right here in Texas. Uh, So we thought these guys are going to be a wealth of information. And it, it turns out that not only are both of them intimately involved with police, Policing, they both also personally know the sting uh, of racism and bigotry. So I am the person that the state turns to three times a year to train the chiefs of police for about six and a half hours out of their 40 hour block mm-hmm. on the state requirements of racial profiling. Uh, I have written nine books. The, the ninth one is the racial profiling 
in policing uh, beyond the basics, which ironically enough, I finished just a few weeks ago, uh, right before the death of Mr. Floyd. And so I called my publisher and asked them to send it back so that I could add some segments regarding to Mr. Floyd's death. I have to ask you what you when you asked for the book back uh, to add in the stuff about George Floyd, what sorts of things will go into this book that weren't there already? Well, you know, and I and I and I can only caption that in one sentence, Jason, which is Mr. Floyd's death makes the unbelievable believable to many people. Right. So 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 throughout history, if you look back at all the police shootings in the U.S., most of them, whether it's excessive use of force or a police shooting, Eric Garner, you know, Sandra Bland. I mean, you can go on and on and on. People always sort of try to put context into the equation and say, well, you know, the officers were they had to do it. They would, didn't have any other. But but in this particular case with with Floyd, the reaction that I have seen in some of the police officers and police commanders when they actually watch the video for nine long minutes, they get to see Mr. Floyd's slow progress to death and they shake their heads and they cannot explain it. And that's why I say in my book, as I've said publicly before, it makes the unexplainable explainable. It makes the unbelievable believable to many people that did not believe that that could happen in America today. Gregory, you're an ethicist uh, as well. Just curious, what are you hearing from your clients and what was your take on that video when it came out? <laughs> Well, Jason, the first thing I want to say is uh, is my heart goes out to the to the Floyd family. Um, that's unimaginable. Um, as as a young kid that grew up in uh, uh, downtown Indianapolis, Indiana, in the center city, and firsthand witnessing what we would have saw at that time as um, police abuse, um, I get it. Did, did you grow up witnessing police abuse as a, as, a, as a teenager? Yes, I mean that's that's not unusual for the neighborhood that I grew up in. It's something that that we saw, and I am happy to say that the the parent agency of my neighborhood, as is, 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 is most police agencies, have made strides in, in 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 changing the culture of the organization. But as a young man growing up in the inner city. Uh, of a major city, the, one of the, the, the 12 largest cities in the country. Um, I did not grow up believing the police were my friend. And it took major efforts to change my mind in that, in that regard. But going back to the, uh, to the Floyd case, when I watched that nine minute video, the, the words disturbing, unbelievable, um, they don't really impact. They don't really give you the feel for what was actually occurring. Um, most people are seeing those sound bites or those clips, but if you watch it for nine minutes, and as, as, as Alex just pointed out, it makes the unbelievable believable. And as I've stated before, coming, coming from the city, Many folks that grew up there, that, uh, that argument has been made over and over again. A, a, abuse has occurred, 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 and it fell on deaf ears because the systems weren't in place where we actually saw it. And what this video does, it not only does it um, give us an image of it, we see it played out in real time. 
I would like I would like to ask both of you because we in our last podcast we heard from a lot of different voices and we asked do you think this time is different just because of that video just because of this movement that we've seen will this time be different will we actually see concrete change that is codified into law after this is said and done I'd, I'd like to hear from both of you on that Alex if you want to start us off I, absolutely I think this is a, a complete game changer. Uh, for law enforcement and for our communities. I think this is unlike anything that we've ever seen before in the history of policing. And the reason for that is because you have not only not only one angle, but multiple angles of a video for nine long minutes, the decayance of somebody's life as they're, as, as they're, as they're dying, uh, this man's plight for his mother, uh, this man's request to please stop that he cannot breathe, all familiar words from the Eric Gardner case at all, and, and then you have people again, and I go back to my previous premise, uh, statement rather, which is it makes the unbelievable believable. The people that were on the sidelines on this in previous cases are no longer on the sidelines. We have heard a wave of law enforcement at the top, at the highest level throughout the United States and the world that have said, this is wrong. We don't stand for this. And this is, has to change. When in the history of this country, can you go back and see that police officers are taking a knee? along with the protesters. And so to me, that is a very powerful statement that things will never be the same again. Aside from the fact of the, of, of, of the death of Floyd caused by the officer in question, probably the most disturbing piece for me in watching that video was the inaction of the other officers involved. It was actually the first thing that, that jumped out at me. And I'm going to tell you the truth, and, and anyone that's worked in law enforcement can, can tell you this. Um, any officer at any time um, can be affected by a situation in a way that's unhealthy. Any, that can happen to any one of us. I was an officer for a total of 12 years. You don't know what the intangibles are with the person that you're dealing with, what was said, what the baggage is. Anything at any time can affect someone in a way that's unhealthy. So therefore, it is incumbent upon our, our, our team members, our partner officers, to step in when they see that happening. And what disturbed me right now is not only did, from, 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 from my opinion, did I see an officer who was probably, who, who was going too far, but I didn't see the other officers pull him back. And if those officers had stepped in, one of, one of them had just stepped in, the life of a, of, a, of a citizen may have been saved and the career of an officer may have been saved and the, the dignity of, a fam, of two families may have been saved. It is incumbent upon our officers to, uh, to look out for one another and to, to, to know that it is their duty, it is their responsibility uh, that when they see wrongdoing or when they see an officer who just may have crossed the line or just going too far to step in, that's what we do in our ethics education. Gregory, I want to ask you about that because you, you are an ethicist. You're, you're, uh, the whole point of this podcast was to back up, give the 30,000 foot view and, and see after you know a week or two of protest, what can we do here? And one of the things that, that you are really working on, Gregory, is 
requiring other officers to step in. We have seen, I have covered in 30 years of journalism, time after time after time where officers will turn off their body cameras, they'll look the other way, they'll they'll secure the perimeter, they'll do everything but look at the law being violated by a colleague or the procedure being violated by a colleague. How are we? To, what do you think should be done? I guess should should other officers be held accountable, even in a death? Yes, but for for other things as well. What what specific change do you think should come out of this and will come out of this? I'll say this, uh, Jason. One of the things that that I, I I hope will come out of this more so than than anything else is that the rules and policies and regulations, uh, the government behavior that we have on the books that we have in place in law enforcement agencies are actually held or actually implemented. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'm on the bandwagon that says that we need a whole lot that's new. There's a, there's a lot out there that, that we have that are control measures uh, for officers that, that are out there on the books. I don't know if they're always enforced. The other piece of that is that uh, that's, that's true for education. Um, Alex and I are both in the business of education. And you can teach someone something, but you can't control how they actually implement it. And if they fail to act, then they simply need to be held accountable. There's an old ethicist out there that, uh, that, uh, that I, I, I guess I'll compete with. He's a retired uh, commander out of Odessa PD. I'm going to give him some props. His name's Jim Dobson. But he has a phrase. Everywhere I, I follow him, we follow each other around the state of Texas. He has a phrase. And his phrase is, they got to go. They got to go. It's real simple. It's blue collar. It's working. The bottom line is when you see misbehavior and when someone misbehaves, there, they're bringing down the profession and they got to go. And that is one thing that is special about North Texas law enforcement uh, that I've seen since I've been here. There is a, there are organizations within North Texas that are focused on holding police officers accountable when they, when, when, when they misbehave. That sets us apart from other major uh, metropolitan areas in, 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 in the state. You have Tarleton State. You have ALEA. You, you have a couple of other major law enforcement education organizations who focus on um, education, leadership, supervision, ethical decision-making, and accountability. Um, I, I do want to say this because I, I, uh, real quick. We teach our officers models. When they, when they find themselves in an ethical dilemma, we give them a model, you may call it theoretical, to think through the situation. And we might write that model out and it might take us an hour in the classroom to do it, but when you're in the field, you can implement it in three, four seconds. It's, it's called inoculation. And one of those models is just called the ethics check questions. Ask yourself a question if you're one of these bystanding officers. Is what I'm doing legal? Is what we're doing right here, does it violate any policies, any procedures, any rules, any regulations? If it is, then stop it. Is it balanced? Is it fair to everyone concerned? Would you treat everyone the same way? If it's not, then take your knee off his neck, take your body, get your buddy off of him. And then number three is, ask yourself this question when it's all over. How will I feel about myself? And if you've had any sort of moral upbringing or, or you had a moral center or you believe in, in the values of police and if you believe in the, 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 the IACP uh, ethical code, um, 
you probably don't feel pretty good about yourself right now if you didn't act. But but isn't isn't there Gregory? Isn't there a a, a code where you know? I don't say that the officers hide behind each other, but you got to go work with this guy the next day. Um, and, and you may have long history with this guy. You may have hung out with him and barbecued with him for years. Yeah, there's an unwritten code. Isn't that hard? Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, that's that's the truth. There's, a, there's an unwritten code. Uh, officers usually defer to the lead officer. We defer to the, lead, the, the, uh, uh, to the senior officer. But if the lead officer or the senior officer is wrong, I ask you to do this. Do a stakeholder analysis. You do a stakeholder analysis and you ask yourself this question, who's going to be affected by what I do or what I don't do? And once you ask yourself that question, my family, my career, who I am, my fellow officers involved, that might just give you the next, the, 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 the oomph, whatever it takes to step in. The bottom line is when officers find themselves in ethical dilemmas, just like a horse, they get, they get blinders, they get tunnel vision. What we do in our programs is give them some information that helps pull those blinders back, that inoculation, so they can actually think some things through. And I heard an officer in in one of the videos say, I'm concerned about excited delirium. I'm I'm, I'm concerned about his well-being. I can't remember the exact words. He knew he was thinking through. He just didn't act. Just got to take that extra step there. Uh, Alex, I want to pose that question to you, though, because uh, Gregory brings up an interesting point. You know, we keep hearing about changes that need to be made, and, and, and he's saying basically that the change that needs to be made is we need to enforce the policies that are already there. Uh, that's kind of a novel way of thinking about this. But I wanted to tap you on that, too, and, and, and just ask you, we've heard a lot of ideas thrown out out there. What does it take to, to fix this? Right. So, so to answer that question, though, and taking it back from Greg's point, right? So at the end of the day, this is an issue of accountability, right? When you look at the other three police officers, as, as Greg mentioned, that are simply just doing nothing about what's going on in front of them. What that tells a person like me that has worked on two federal consent decrees is there is an endemic cultural issue in that police department. Because this is not one isolated case. Look, look, this, this police officer in question here from what we've read so far through the media, is he's had 18 complaints in in a 20-year career. That is extraordinary, right? So so in law enforcement, that is, I don't care if the complaint was that he was chewing gum and walking backwards at the same time. At the end of the day, that is absolutely extraordinary in a police. Now, I, I will say this, right? That police officers, it's almost inevitable that they have complaints filed against them because, you know, because of what they do, right? The nature of their job, they're in a conflict situation. Somebody is going to complain about something at some time. But to have 18 of them and to put this guy back in the streets again and to have the other officers standing by, and, and, I, will, and I will highlight this before I answer your question. Notice what the officer that is killing Mr. Floyd is doing. He is looking straight at the camera. So, so, so this is a person that is fully aware of the fact that he's being filmed. This is a busy street. There are three other officers watching him, and no one intervenes. In my line of work, okay, in putting on my hat as a former federal monitor and as a current special master, I can tell you right now that the Justice Department is going to have a field day with this in the sense that they're going to look at this and say, this is an endemic problem, because that's our thermometer 
that we use in order to determine chronic problems from an organizational standpoint. So to answer your question and to go back to what, to, to what Greg said, it's accountability. <clears throat> You've got to make these officers accountable for what they do. Look, everyone is obsessed about two things in law enforcement, policies and numbers, right? Everyone's like, oh, do I have a great policy? Yeah, of course you do. You've got the IACP model. You've got the perf model. You, you know, uh, you've got the right verb, the right noun, the right sentence. Those policies are absolutely worthless if the people in charge are not willing and able to enforce them. Okay. Is it is it too hard to fire a police officer, though? Uh, you know, we see these complaints uh, j- that just pile up in, in some cases. Is it too hard to fire a police officer? And even if you do, the police officer can go to work for another department. Exactly. So, so TICO has made it a little bit more difficult these days if you fire a police officer for that person to go somewhere else and get a job, at least in the state of Texas. But, but I will tell you that in some of our, of our other neighbors that are highly unionized, it is very, very difficult to fire someone because of the fact that they've got all these provisions that simply simply handcuff, for lack of a better term, the command staff to get rid of that person, right? But, but, but I will tell you from going back to your original question, what can we do, right? So, so, so first of all, there needs to be a better coordination with the community, unquestionably. Whether, you know, and, and I don't know that, that oversight boards are, are, are in fact the, the solution to the problem. There are pluses and minuses about having them. But I will tell you that from my perspective, the community has to be involved in the absolute governance of the department one way or another. You've got to have people in there. And that, by the way, serves the purpose of having the connectivity to the department, but at the same time, having the community members informed about what police officers do. So it's a part of it is, is, is education. The second part, which I think Greg touched upon, is education, right? So at Tarleton, we created a PhD program for practitioners. And, and, and I'm happy to tell you that last year we filled our first class and, and, it, and it is 95% law enforcement. And we are convinced, and I convinced the, the you know, a group of us rather, convinced the, the coordinating board in Texas that we needed educated police professionals with master's degrees, with PhDs, so that they can understand the nature of what they do. And, and, I, and I'll tell you the third thing is, is we need to look at not only increasing that community police officer cooperation, but we also need to be able to enforce the training, right? The, the, the training that Greg was talking about. We have, we have people with very long resumes that are training police officers across the United States. And so everyone is sort of picking which one is the cheapest, which one is the best, which one has those great lines that they give you, how many notes you write. But training is worthless unless it's applied in the streets, right? Unless you have, again, that accountability factor that comes in. And so, so I will leave you with the fact that I think it's, it's training, education, and community involvement. Those are the three pillars that I hope the legislators in Texas look at in order to engage that and continue the process of requiring them to submit the data, to analyze the data, and to be able to explain what exactly it says. Here's the thing that strikes me, guys, is at the end of the day, uh, you guys are training law enforcement. Uh, a lot of them are highly trained. And I would say everyone that almost everyone that I've interacted with are fantastic officers. I've had a few rough ones over the years. Who hasn't? But at the end of the day, I see cases like this one where you have an African-American man thrown to the ground for for uh, passing a fake $20 bill. Allegedly, you have the Eric Garner case in New York, where he's allegedly selling a loose cigarette and, and you know, strangled by a chokehold. 
it seems that law enforcement officers, white or whomever, are, well, they are white because I haven't seen an African-American officer do this to an African-American on film or on, on video. Why are white officers treating African-American suspects, in air quotes here, differently? Have you all seen in any data, any any research, any, any mental evaluations yeah, on yeah. that? So, so the Stanford, Stanford University, about three years ago, they did a massive study where they actually looked at thousands of body cam videos, right? So they reviewed them. And who, by the way, who reviewed them were the linguists that actually worked for Stanford. And it was a fascinating study, right? Because what they did is they actually looked into what the tone of, 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 in the voice of the police officer was when they interacted with minorities versus non-minorities. And guess what they concluded? What they found is that police officers generally use a higher pitch, more aggressive language towards minorities than non-minorities. So, so, so these are professional police officers that have been trained to do this. So we know, and anyone that's a minority that is listening to this podcast, anyone out there that is a minority will tell you, in my case, a first-generation immigrant from Nicaragua that came to the States at the age of 14, uh, fleeing a war and having survived communism. And I can tell you right now, as a minority, as someone that learned English at the age of 14 in Huntsville, Alabama, which wasn't exactly the most diversified place on the planet, I will tell you that anyone that's a minority, and this was my first lesson in English, right? Which was, there is a different standard for you. There's a different standard for you. Someone that is not of your skin color, that doesn't have the accent that you do, can go out there and do X, Y, and Z. But for you, you can't afford to screw up half the time, right? And so, so, so Alex, Alex how, how do you break that? How do you break that, though? That, that seems to be the core of all this. How do you break that? You know, I think it's through education. Through, through, through the idea of, of association, to, to our, I think to our benefit as a country, we're having these millennials now that through social media, through the means of communication, they're in touch with the world, right? So 50 years ago to go to Europe, you had to suit up and be in a smoke-filled airplane in order to you know, fly 15 hours to London. Whereas now, people hop on a plane to go to London like I'm having breakfast this morning, right? So at the end of the day, the, the connectivity of the world is such and, and proof of that is the fact that we've had, you know, protests outside the embassy, uh, U.S. embassy in London. The fact that we, you know, this, this, this George Floyd killing has resonated throughout the world, right? So, so we have now millennials, that is, is my hope, that these young, technically savvy, very bright people that are connected to the world are going to change that perception of association as we, incre- as we increase the number of, of marriages between black, brown, and white as we increase the conversation that we're no longer a quote-unquote white-based society, but we are a multicultural, complex society. And I will say, I will finalize by saying this, if you look at the color of skin or those that are protesting, (laughs) it is not predominantly African-American or Hispanic. There are a lot of white folks out there, you know, really, really upset at what's going on. And and so, so that gives me hope in the sense that I think that change is coming and change is inevitable for our country. And I would agree with Alex on that. That 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 difference in the protesters actually gives me hope as well. But I'm going to go back to this uh, on your on your question, Jason. Um, uh, and I'm going to speak as 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 Gregory Smith, uh, an African American man, a, a soldier, a law enforcement officer who grew up in the inner city. Um, this is a bigger issue than changing how police officers see minorities. 
Okay, the the when I was a young teenage black male in in the inner city, not when I interacted with law enforcement personnel, the feeling that I normally got, and this is anecdotal, but it, it but it was supported by what Alex just said, the feeling that I got from young police officers that were white were that they were afraid of me, and when they were afraid of me, what that meant to me was they came at me in a more aggressive way. It took older senior officers in that police department to interact with me in a different way that were experiencing that gave me hope. I think that's why I got into the profession. We used to have an officer friendly program and officer friendly um, actually talked to us. He actually parked at the back of school 48 when we would go to shoot a little basketball and say, Hey boys, how you doing? We got to talking to him. And one day I remember we walked up to him and, said, hey, uh, how many people have you shot? And he said, boys, I've never even come out of this holster. We said, oh, man, we know you're lying. Because <laughs> we know what neighborhood you were. But the bottom line is he had a conversation with us. And why did he have a conversation with us? Because he got to know the neighborhood. He realized that we weren't a threat, that all of us, there was a difference between uh, good kids and bad kids. And, and the bad kids, he could define, he didn't see them based on, uh, your, your, your color or your dress. So where I'm going with this is that those police officers and how they see minorities, they're a product of the overall society. So before we say we got to fix police officers' view of minorities, I'm going to tell you something. We got to fix how the overall society views minorities in this country. If we do that, to do that then we're going to be recruiting from that pool. So yes, I work with law enforcement. Alex works with law enforcement. We're going to do our due diligence, but we need the rest of society to step up as well. I hear law enforcement officers all the time say that, you know, they, they have to be psychologists. They have to be garbage men. They have to be this. Well, law enforcement needs some help. And when we start, work, when we start working on this globally, that gives me help. Greg, you know that that's a big lift uh, yeah. and, and, and fixing society is it, it, it is a, a great ideal to work toward. But you know that these things tend to after we lose the momentum of the protests, people are going to want to laser focus in on police and, and not think as much about society. Is there a risk coming out of this that we will over legislate, that we will try to throw everything that we can at the wall uh, to, to see what sticks as far as different pro- procedures and, and programs for police and that that might actually not get us anywhere? Your, your point is valid. I think we, we don't need more legislation. We need smart legislation. And so that being said, that requires us stepping back and and evaluating. Uh, I am a a law enforcement educator. Uh, From from our part, we're we're going to continue to focus on that. Um, I think how we speak to one another is very important. Um, um, You call it politically correct if you like, but I know in my world, uh, using words like racist, using words like racism, uh, doesn't help the conversation. Uh, there's no place to go from that. I think sometimes what we're talking about is bigotry. I think we're talking about bias. I think we're talking about unconscious bias, implicit bias, explicit bias, whatever you want to call it. But we have to talk to one another and give folks space to have a conversation. 
and we have to understand how differently we speak. And I, I, in a podcast, I think that's kind of different because we, we come from different cultures where how we say what we say is important to the message that's being said. And within certain cultures, uh, that works, but when the cultures are talking to one another, uh, a lot of misinterpretation can happen. And I think that's where a, a lot is lost. We get lo- when we start having conversations about this, um, we lose in how we say what we say as opposed to what we're saying. We never get to the core. So as we move forward, and I would implore any chief, uh, any sheriff, any leader in law enforcement, when you go to a community meeting, understand that community and understand the community dynamics of that community because certain communities are going to need you to show some compassion. They're going to need you to show some feelings. They're going to need more than just the facts. Just the facts isn't always going to convince someone that you are sincere. And so um, go out there, send your people out there, do that groundwork. We can have the research, we can have the data, but if we can't communicate it, we get nowhere. One of the things that, that I think is important to, to note is that, and, and Greg kind of touched upon this, most of law enforcement in Texas are made up of decent, honest, hardworking people that get up every single day to risk their lives for the rest of us. Let's not lose sight of that, right? Let's not lose sight of the fact that there are a lot of heroes out there that put on a uniform every day, and some of them never come back home. And so I think it's, it's unfortunate that we're not talking about them. And it's unfortunate that there has been a very negative uh, perception of law enforcement uh, from this isolated incident. That is not to say we don't have problems. And that is not to say that we can't correct them. And that is not to say that they don't have the courage to do it. But I think it's important to be mindful of that. And so secondly, I would encourage the legislators to talk to folks like Greg, like myself, and like others that have been doing this for a long time that can actually provide some, some perspective as opposed to have an emotional legislation on this matter versus a cerebral one and based on science. And so, so again, you know, my, my, my recommendation is to look, to look inward at the state of Texas, to try to prevent as much as we can on this, but, but also to emphasize that all of these problems begin with the recruitment and training of police officers. Let's not lose sight of that either, right? I'm currently developing a bias test that I'm gonna hopefully have operational in a few months to give to police agencies so that they can actually measure the level of bias that police, that police candidates are coming in with. And I will tell you, we're pretty excited about it because we think that this is gonna be, I mean, police candidates go through psychological testing, they go through background testing, they go through all of that, but we don't have a bias test. And that is very, very important. While acknowledging that we all have biases, there are some biases that simply cannot be corrected. Because as some people have said, this is a heart issue, not a training issue, right? So, Alex, you buried the lead there. You, that's a that's a tremendous thing. Uh, how do you how do you measure somebody's bias? Well, there are some tests out there that have been done, right? So Harvard Harvard had a test that they that they actually have online that that allows you to measure your um, your bias testing. But about three and a half years ago, I went to Harvard for a summer um, you know uh, training that I did over there. On, on management of, of universities. And, and I, I spoke to a linguist and a couple of other professors that were there, and I shared with them the idea that I had, and they thought it was brilliant, right? Because they thought that, that if we could go out there and measure 
you know, the level of bias among police officers. That would be just a home run. And no one's actually done it in our in our field. And so what I what I did do is I went out and I started using some of those protocols, some of those questions. And, and the idea is that we would have a series of questions, about 300 of them, that are going to be administered to police candidates, some of which we will get to interview them via Zoom. And then, and then at the end, we'll be able to determine on a scale where they fall within the scope of everybody else in society, right? And if, mm-hmm. and if, and if they are kind of in the middle of it, you know, in other words, if it's, if it's the bias that you would expect from an average citizen, then, then clearly they're, they're okay to go through the police, through police training. But if they're way off, Right. If they if they if they are, you know, way out of the norm of what that bell curve shows, then then we w- we're going to make the recommendation to the police department that we wouldn't hire that candidate. And, and you would be amazed, by the way, at how honest people are in those police interviews. Uh, you know, I've sat through some of them and the things that they have said as to why they want to be police officers would automatically uh, allow me to dismiss them <laughs> if, if, if I were the one hmm. making that decision. Very interesting. Well, I hope that we see both of you uh, testifying there in Austin as legislators start to take this up because they certainly could use the brain trust we have here in Texas. And a great point there, Alex, about the people who are serving us every day, who put on that uniform every day and risk it all. There are a lot of really good apples out there, and and we do need to remember that. And they do say that no one hates a bad cop as much as a good cop does. Exactly right. And those words are exactly right. No one hates a bad cop more than a good cop because it, it, it you know, stains their name, their reputation, their industry, their profession, and all of it. And, yeah. that, that's and it makes their jobs harder, too, because look at these police who have been standing out in these lines. For the most part, some of them have overreacted during these protests, but the vast majority of police that you see are standing in these lines being remarkably restrained as people are coming right up to them. And it's all because, you know, somebody else in another department did something. I'm glad Alex said that, too, and added that after that uh, really comprehensive conversation. Fortunately, there's a lot of talk right now, Jason, among state legislators thinking, okay, what are we going to do? It's time to start putting some ideas together. The legislature reconvenes in six months from now uh, at the first of uh, January. The governor in Dallas the other day said that, yeah, we are going to put everything on the table and consider everything. Well, one of the people who has an idea is a state representative in Dallas. She represents District 100. Her name is Lorraine Birabil. She just got elected. She is elected now to the seat that uh, was once the seat of Eric Johnson before he became mayor of Dallas. So we got Lorraine on the line to explain her idea for legislation. Jason, it's a lot a lot like what we just heard from uh, Alex and Gregory. Absolutely. So um, we recently made a few calls to action. Some of them obviously are here in the city of Dallas. But at the statewide level, what I'd like to see, hopefully, is that my bill passes in the law. It's, it, it's called See Something, Say Something. Um, and so essentially, uh, it's the same premise that we all in the community participate in with law enforcement. They ask us, if you see something, you should say something. Um, and I think that that has worked well in terms of making sure that uh, residents are, are communicating with law enforcement and letting them know if there's some sort of suspicious activity going on. But I think that if we were to extend that into a law enforcement context, uh, that would uh, be a great improvement in terms of 
community trust in police, just like they trust us to report. Uh, if we could trust them to report their colleagues when there is misconduct going on, similar to what happens in other professions. And I truly believe that law enforcement, good law enforcement is a profession that shouldn't be tarnished um, by uh, incidences of police uh, misconduct and, and frankly, brutality. Representative Bear Bill, what exactly uh, does See Something, Say Something uh, ask for? It asks for a statutory statewide uh, mandate that officers uh, who are licensed peace officers um, essentially report. So, for example, if they witness in, uh, police brutality or misconduct, it would be a statutory requirement that they file a formal report. Um, and the purpose of that, of course, is it allows for a thorough review of these incidences and make sure that there's some accountability within the department uh, beyond internal affairs. I'm sure that uh, you all in the media have heard about various audits and things of that nature that have come back and, and clearly indicated that our internal systems of reporting uh, in the complaint process is, is simply not working. Um, and so it's an effort to make sure that these kinds of things don't happen again. And I would think that those who, uh, th who's, those who are in the law enforcement community will want to support this because I don't think that there's any officer who's out there working hard every day to protect and serve wants to see uh, situations like what happened uh, with George Floyd and so many others happen again. The only difference is that it was on camera. These incidences are not always on camera. And what this bill hopes to address are those incidences that are not on camera that leads to mistrust. Well, Representative, obviously, you've seen for years, we all have, the, you know, protect the blue where, where you know, officers hide behind the badge a little bit. That That's not a majority of them. But in so many of these cases, we see them turn off their body cams, turn off their microphones, not capture something. Is there going to be a penalty in your legislation if an officer doesn't file something that he or she might have seen on the street? Yes, Jason. Um, what uh, the penalty range would be would begin at the lowest level of the class A misdemeanor, and it could go all the way up to a felony uh, for aiding and abetting a criminal. So this, the charges could be quite serious uh, if it is an egregious circumstance. I'm still working out the, de the details with the Texas Legislative Council who will determine where in the code uh, it would exactly fit uh, upon passage. Uh, but that is the range of penalty. And so there is a range, and that's intentional, because uh, it could be a, a range in the particular circumstances that we're dealing with. And I think that a jury should be given the flexibility to make the determination of, of what is the most appropriate uh, way of handling it. And and who are they reporting this to under the bill? Does this essentially take a, a complaint like this out of being just an internal affair there in a department? Well, that is something we're still working out. What I would like to see in a, in a perfect world uh, would be that there are oversight uh, boards um, available, just like the one that Dallas Police Department uh, overhaul. So there was a civilian review board prior to um, the community police oversight board creation. However, the difference was is that that uh, prior civilian review board didn't have the power of subpoena didn't really have the power to conduct investigations, the things that are really essential in order to make sure that there is transparency in the process. Uh, for a time immemorial in, in law enforcement context in the history of this country, uh, internal affairs, it, it sounds like it's something that should create transparency in that it's a way to police the police, but in reality and in practice, it has been too often as uh, an administration used to prevent the 
full information coming to light in the public. And frankly, some have argued a way to protect officers behind a blue wall. Representative, what are your constituents saying right now after witnessing the protest, maybe taking part in the protest, after seeing that eight minutes and 46 seconds of what happened to George Floyd? What are you hearing from your constituents? People are beyond words. And I, and I think that is why we're in a critical moment today where we find ourselves. Uh, this is not uh, because of a one-off. This is not because of a single incident. This is something that has been going on uh, for years and years and years. And to, I think the first step to healing really is there has to be a societal acknowledgement of how we got to this moment. We got to this moment um, because of the systemic a situation of institutional racism in our country that has led to unequal opportunity uh, to economic and educational mobility. And I think holistically and big picture, we never really uh, move to where we need to be as a country until we address that or take steps to address that. And I think what I'm trying to do with this bill, is it a uh, foolproof? No. Is it something that's going to solve all the problems? Absolutely not. But it's definitely a step in the right direction. And I think it's something that can help officers be accountable to each other, but also to our community. So let me ask you, you've already been on the phone with some of your colleagues here. The next legislative session in Texas doesn't start until next January. But the governor just said the other day uh, that work is already begin on legislation, beginning on legislation to address issues like this. Uh do you know what else is cooking? Is there a lot more cooking? Are you hearing other things from other corners of the legislature already? Yes, many, many colleagues have reached out and we've discussed plans for coming into special session. Uh, hopefully that would happen, um, but also reforms in general that need to be made. There were some provisions uh, under Sandra Bland that were never passed. Um, we have reforms that we want to implement to make sure that oversight boards do have access to internal affairs uh, portals and to evidentiary portals that would allow them to conduct thorough and complete investigations. That kind of transparency is what's going to build public trust, not words. So this uh, next legislative session that starts up in January here in Texas, unless we get a special session before that happens, we still, you know, anything could happen in these months in between. It's going to be an interesting one. I think we are going to see a flood of proposals, not just in our legislature here in Texas, but in legislatures all across this country and, of course, in Congress as well as we go forward. This is a defining moment, Jason. This is a time when you can feel the momentum of change coming And I think it's going to be tremendous change. Maybe I am naive. I don't know. Maybe things will fall back like they have with so many other of these cases that have caught the national attention. But this time, like I said at the beginning, just feels very different. It does feel different. I think the test, though, Jason, will be is whether this can sustain the next six months, whether this remains right on top. Remember, we still have a a, a presidential election, a big giant election to go through. Who knows if we'll get another case, a second wave of the pandemic that comes through. Mm -hmm. Keeping this top of mind for legislators, that will be the ultimate test, Jason, as we go into January in the Texas legislature. 
And speaking of tests, uh, the first two guests there, we heard them talk about this test that uh, you know Harvard has put out that now, uh, as we were hearing from Alex Del Carmen there, he has modified this and he's going to start giving this in Texas for potential police recruits for different departments to test what their level of bias is. I think that makes some news here, Jason, to start actually administering that in different departments that are willing to do that. That could be... A an interesting part of a solution going forward and so we wondered about this test harvard you know as, as we said have, have put out this uh, this test and it's sort of it, it it looks at what your bias might be for different things and you can take it online and and that's what's fascinating about it you can take it and and look at your bias for someone's weight someone's skin tone someone's race there's like 15 20 categories in there but we're going to put the link to that test. It's an online test. Takes 15 minutes or so, probably. We'll put the link in the description to this podcast. Take the test. Tell us what you think. If you want to, the results might be private on it. But I think it's it's important to at least see where this, you know, where you might stand according to this test, Jason. And just so everybody knows, uh, we know that there are going to be a lot of legitimate things that are going to pop up on on the radar here in the months ahead. Um, And we know that there are going to be a lot of distractions that are going to come along as well. This is something that we intend to have more conversations about because uh, obviously this is really ripping at the fabric of our whole society here. Uh, And and something has to happen. Something has to give here. uh, And we want to be continue to be a part of that conversation. So this isn't the last word on this uh, by a long shot on this podcast. Not at all. So until then, y'all be safe and we appreciate you listening.